Justin. And you're listening to the ENJ Show. It's a podcast about food, farming, sex, dating, yada yada, whatever I usually say. And the... <laughs> See, I wasn't ready at all. <laughs> it's a podcast about food, sex, dating, and this crazy little thing we call life. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's what I one say. One of those. Somewhere you could splice that all together and it would all be correct. So we got um, it somewhere down the line. We got it. Yeah. We'll, we'll fix it later. Um, so how's it going? It's going all right. Here we are, beginning of Here. December. And Can you believe it? I don't know where the time has gone. Mm. Uh, doesn't really feel like it, but here we are. And uh, again, it's been like three months since we've recorded. So we've both been bit pretty busy. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the theme running over this entire episode is looking back at some stuff that we've done or been thinking about for the last few months. And mm -hmm. um, both of these actually have have ripples beyond just the last few months, but actually kind of affect uh, our lives, how we approach things, just general kind of how we were raised type yeah. ideas and concepts. So uh, that that's kind of where we're shooting for today. Um, I actually think both of these topics, they may seem rather distant on paper. I, I think they have a lot to do uh, with each other. So that's my take yeah, on it. Yeah, I think so too. I think we're talking a lot about the, the world in which our parents were raised. Uh, being the 60s and 70s, I guess. And uh, yeah, and and the physical locations of where they were raised. Um, right. And I, I think we've both been thinking a lot about, um, you know, since you started therapy and I've been in therapy, thinking more about this recently, the way that we were raised by these parents who were raised during this time and how that's affected us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, both of us have older parents as far as our peers go. You know, yeah, having, our moms are the same age. That certainly colors how we were brought up. Um, but yeah, the, the times for sure. So uh, my topic is about one of the trips I did this summer, we we went to Acadia in June, and then mm -hmm. in what was it August, we went to Burlington, Vermont. But in uh, July, I took a trip to upstate New York, or for upstate New York people, more central New York, um, with my mother and my aunt, uh, as my grandmother had passed away in February. And so we took her ashes to the family plot in Binghamton, New York and then went up to uh, Sherburn, New York, which is just south of Hamilton, which is where Colgate is, and uh, saw the family farm that my mother and her sister grew up on. Uh, this was something that I had never experienced before. I'd never been there. Uh, my father's side of the family from upstate New York, they're from Geneva on uh, Seneca Lake in the Finger Lakes. 
and I'd been there plenty of times as a kid, but I'd, I'd never been to Sherburne or Earlville, which is also where my grandparents lived. Um, they had sold the farm and, and stopped being sheep farmers by the time I was born. They were living in Florida. So this was this is something I had heard about my entire life. And uh, I don't know anyone else whose parents were raised on a farm. I think being in the greater Boston area, uh, unless unless people's parents were from uh, a more rural place, if they were from anywhere around like New England, I just, I just don't know anyone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it was like for you growing up on Long Island, but I mean that, it's all farmland, so yeah, it's a different it's a different scene. <laughs> I would and, and say, like a lot of people that I went to school with growing up were children of farmers and. I don't know if a lot of them became farmers, but Eastern Long Island is a very agricultural uh, center of the East Coast. Yeah, and that's something I myself even forget sometimes. You know, I I, I think about just uh, people like Jerry Seinfeld jetting out there to go. You right. Know, yeah. So you, you, you see these headlines. Vacation like, house. Oh, Paul McCartney shows up. For Italian dinner on Long Island. Yeah. It's the start of summer. Well, where's that food coming from? Those tomatoes are coming from local farms. Exactly. You got a point. So, uh, you know, I think, honestly, if you were to break it down, I'm sure my mom was one of a very few number of her classmates that did not take on the family farm business and actually moved out of Sherburne Four Corners. Uh, because we're driving around and every farm still has the family name on it. And sure enough, it's just the next generation doing it, whether it is a cheese farm or uh, beef or whatever. A lot of dairy in that region. It's it's pretty much cow country. Uh, whether- I just wanted to say, I just, sorry, let me interject for one second, that in Suffolk County alone, which is the county that I grew up in, there's 585 farms, and there's 604 farms on Long Island total, which includes Nassau and Suffolk County. So there are a lot of farms where I grew it's, up. It's pretty dense, I believe. It's pretty farmy. Yeah. 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 And, it, and it mostly was potatoes and corn. Right, because that's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know the the area where sherburne is it's just it's a lot of dairy uh whether you're talking milk or cheese or what have you a ton of cows more cows than i've ever seen in my life and if they if they don't have cows then they're doing corn for silage for the cows yeah mm. um but my grandparents they moved from new jersey when my mom was just born her older sister was i think four years older than her so so we're talking about 1954 they moved from New Jersey. My grandfather being um, had an engineering background. He had served in World War II as a merchant marine. Mm. He didn't know anything about farming, but decided that's what he wanted to do. And mm. so they moved and they found a cheap plot of land on the side of a hill. It was about 120 acres or so. And, they and your had, mom was born that year? She may have been one or two. I, she doesn't remember living in New Jersey. She was born there, but all her memories okay. are, are, are of New York. So she was an infant for sure. Yeah. Um, 
And so they started with cows because that's what everyone else did. And they soon mm -hmm. realized that cows don't work well on a steep hill. Uh, cows like flat land. Yes. So they got sheep and goats and they had a few horses and everything and, and they did it up. And my grandfather worked also a day job where he was doing drafting for another company. My grandmother worked at the local library as the librarian. And then in their spare time, they did... Uh, wool and they did textiles and they would mm. go to all sorts of county fairs and everything and that kind of uh, classic American kind of midway lifestyle in a way. Um, meanwhile, I've mentioned on the show before, my father comes from uh, not urban, but definitely more developed kind of suburb type, you know, the Finger Lakes area, very gorgeous, right? but middle child of five uh, father was also in World War II, but no right. one's doing anything agricultural. It's a little more um, white collar. So very different from how my father was brought up. And mm -hmm. I always had the touchstone of my father's upbringing, but never with my mother's. And so going there was right. amazing. You, you see the land, you see the house that still stands, all of the barns that my grandfather built by hand. Uh, mm. And this is stuff that I've seen in a few pictures, but aside from that, that that's it. They, yeah. they, they moved away from that farm when my mom went to college and right. downsized. So Don't you think that makes sense though, that like the way that your mom sort of like has uh, assimilated to her partners um, and, and lost touch with herself and, and does feel regret about that too, but like totally just is like very, old school woman in that way that like she wouldn't have even thought to introduce you to the life that you grew up in i think i think deep down she would have loved to hmm. um but the opportunity was never really there aside from stopping there on the way to go to geneva or something um i yeah i certainly think there are some mixed emotions about it for sure um because I grew up and my mother would always be making hats and mittens and scarves. Uh, she, she was a weaver. That's what she went to school for. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with textiles all around the house. And, you know, when I first met you, actually, I remember seeing the spinning wheel in your apartment. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that sent me back to my childhood because I was used to seeing all of that. And, all the various tools for yarn and and spinning and yeah it's not it's people always comment on it i i still have it it has yarn on it right now that i'm been in the process of making for like two months but i people that's such a rare thing that people have they are always curious about it because it's this big wooden you know arcane looking tool yeah and that's you know for me the only other times I'd seen one really outside of a museum or something, I hate to say that, but it's true. No, it's uh, true. Yeah. Was, you know, my grandmother's basement and my mother's studio. And so to me, it's a touchstone to a part of my life I didn't really uh, mm. know too well. And so here I am, 25, and we made this trip. And it was it was healing in some way because yeah. I in some ways it felt like I was going home because mm. as we've mentioned before, we met working on a farm in, yeah. in the greater Boston area. And so that's something I've been doing for a number of years now, entirely separate from the fact that, you know, that's 
where part of my family comes from is farming. Yeah. And it, it was this odd sense of like, I could envision all of this stuff as it was. And mm. the fact that the people in town still refer to it as the hall farm, even though it hasn't been farmed in 40 years or so, it's yeah. really incredible. Too, um, I think it's like the part of your family that you usually associate with like yourself less. Like you, when I've heard you talk about your parents, you really like think more of yourself as your father's child than your mother's child. Like you have more of his genes and interests and um, ways of thinking about the world. I mean, that's the thing. We know what we know, right? And you've, yeah. you've mentioned this before of when you when you moved to Massachusetts and all these things you started realizing yeah, uh, as an adult rather than things that maybe someone like me would just know from growing yeah, up. Yeah, because I grew up in a... I, not only did I grow up in a rural area, but I had a really close-knit uh, family that was not a part of the community in the way that other families were. My parents isolated themselves from everyone. The entire culture of the 60s, as you and I know it, through yeah. history, through through video and text, a lot of the experiential part was kind of lost because that doesn't yeah. reach rural parts of America like that. Yeah, and too, like, your, our parents were a little young for it. They like right. they, they weren't were old the enough to end. go to Woodstock and like be at the High Ashbury uh, district and like go party with the Grateful Dead. Well, I've I've got I've got two really quick stories about Woodstock, and then we'll turn okay. it over to your. To oh your yeah, topic. yeah. Um. So, because it's a good segue. So, I remember asking my dad when I was maybe thirteen or so about Woodstock when I became aware of it. Mm -hmm. And because he would have been about 16 or so. And I said, what did you go? Well, what was the deal? And he said, no, we, we actually weren't living in upstate New York at the time. We were living outside of Boston. And he said, I was working at this job down um, like at some factories by the seaport. And he said, mm -hmm. I had a coworker who said, oh, I'm going up to upstate New York. They're having this music festival and like, they're going to have all these acts up there. And I, I think like Bob Dylan might be there or something <laughs> or like, you know, may, maybe like Led Zeppelin. I don't know. And my dad said, upstate New York, I, I, nothing like that happens in upstate New York. Right. Okay. And the guy left and he never saw him again. The other, crazy. Yeah. the other story. You told me this and I'm like, did that guy die? What happened? He probably just did acid for the first time and realized he didn't need to work some minimum wage job at the docks in Boston. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then uh, apparently my mother's sister, who would have been, you know, I, th I think she would have been like maybe 18 or, or hmm. 18, 19. I don't know. A little older, though, a little more in the yeah. age range of, of the independence. She wanted to go to Woodstock really badly, but I think she made the mistake of telling her parents. Mm. And my grandparents had no concept of rock and roll, but yeah. they did know that there would be drugs and sex there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they said absolutely not, because I think she was asking if she could carpool with some friends. Mm. And you don't do that. You don't tell people. You just do it. And then yeah, you, you just do it. You deal with the fallout after. That's not very hippie to ask, hey, can I carpool to Woodstock? Right. Um, so no one in my family went, but they were on the periphery of, of being aware of it. But at the yeah. time, that's all it was. 
I mean, yeah, that's what it was for most people. It's like you just heard about it. Um, or you didn't until until years or you later. Didn't. Yeah. yeah, and then you're like, wait, this thing happened. Um, and two, like we've been talking about in my course, I've been taking a class at Harvard Extension um, on the 1960s, and we've been talking about many things, music included. You know, one of the things about Woodstock is it wasn't this idyllic, perfect, magical experience for everyone. There were a lot of people who were injured and took really too many drugs, too much, and were having freakouts. And, you know, they, they were very understaffed medically and the tents were full and the lines to get in were ridiculous. So, you know, it's it, it like most things, and this is kind of the main, one of the main points of this course, the 60s, Woodstock, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, it's all remembered in a different way than it actually happened. And there's such a, there's this like trite saying or like, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Like a lot of boomers will huh. say that. And I mean, I guess that is such a huge part of it is like, how could you remember it as anything other than like a fantasy if you were always high? Pretty much. And that's why it felt so good for them when they have happy memories, because yeah. if that's all you're doing, then yeah. But reality, of course, is there were a lot of terrible things going on during the 60s. I've been thinking so much about this, and there are so many layers to it that I think it's hard to encapsulate in like just a few sentences. But what I wanted to talk about today and what I've been thinking about the most through this course is how uh, this um, how this world the was the one that my parents grew up in and how that that shaped their reality and the reality that was shaped for me as a child. You know, I really grew up with these parents who, felt that peace and love were the be-all end-all of like the ultimate goal and like they never thought about how we were going to get there they just drew peace signs and painted pictures of pretty things and said we need to save the trees and the animals and respect each other but there was like there was nothing behind it um and, you know, I, like, I idealized the hippie culture growing up to the point where, like, the second I got to college, I was like, well, it's time to do acid, because that's what you do, right? <laughs> I was always taught that, like, yeah, that was a counterculture, but that's the thing. It's, it's, it's not dominating. It's counter to the dominant culture. And so peace and love and the dead it's, and all of yeah. that it yeah it's there but just because it was the popular thing doesn't mean everyone was doing it because if everyone's doing right. it right and it's not counter right exactly and and two though like to that point speaking of like counter versus like anti like the counterculture was not anti-establishment the counterculture was not anti uh 
capitalism because there was no way to be countercultural without access to uh, the mainstream. You have to know what the mainstream is in order to be counter to it. And like, you know, something that's been emphasized in this course is you can't like have LSD, listen to electric guitars, um, and uh, dress in a very like hippie chic way without money, um, without modern technology. These are all things that would not exist without capitalism. So it's like the hippies on the one hand were saying, you know, we're not a part of the system anymore. We're, we're alienated from the system. And yet at the same time, they're benefiting from uh, Western consumerism and, and the money that has been uh, gathered over time from, you know, being a central power in the in the global system, um, sp speaking specifically about the United States. Right. Um, and, and the thing, too, is like if those people weren't wearing Paisley and didn't have daisy crowns on their heads, yeah. they would still have those same opportunities. Right. Exactly. Like they, exactly. they could. And that's some of them, you know, decades later shave off the hair and become yuppies or whatever but yeah there's but, think about it, there's no one in power who's a hippie because like you can't be a hippie and be and actually make political waves because the point of being a hippie is you're dropping out from it which is not changing the center the center reality it's just it's well like what i what i was learning in class is like it's childlike it's like okay i want to drop all of my responsibilities and take lsd and have sex with random people um and just like not go to school or have a job or anything and it's like well that's not that's not liberalism that's not right. helping other people that's not helping for equality uh it's not changing the system at all. It's literally just dropping the whole thing and walking away from it. And that's how my parents live and were raised me to experience, like, or to, to live my own life. Like, when my mother was here last in September and she asked me, like, why I wanted to get a job and I said, you know, I wanted to make my own money and I wanted to help people, she told me I was a sellout, basically. She was like, everything that we've taught you has been, like, erased. Because my parents still think that if you magically drop everything, the system is going to be better. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, irony, the irony of that is there's really just a, a small percentage of people in this country that could live like that. And so right, to, you have to be wealthy. You you have to be wealthy. And so, you know, when you're talking about changing the society and and shifting the balance of power and influence and where money is being stored, it's like you know, wake up and realize that you would be one of those people, right? You know, when talking about shifting that around because most people can't afford to do that. And it, exactly. it is a little rich to have these hippie values about, you know, taking it from the man, but 
yeah essentially kind of being the man in a way yeah it's very easy to say that you are going to walk away from a system that you've already benefited from your family has already benefited from and uh and just say you're not gonna do it because you don't have to well these other people have to be a part of the system in order to survive they have to work they because they need to eat and they need clothes for their for themselves and their children um it's like who went to san francisco who went to woodstock mostly people who had the money to just drop everything and leave yeah absolutely and and you contrast that with like you know groups such as the black panthers doing you know uh free breakfast for school kids and, and yeah. doing all of this stuff in their communities right that a lot of these white more liberal more affluent people it's like they don't give a shit about the community around them yeah it was, it was about the, themselves yeah and that's what has been emphasized to us too like we you know the black panther movement was part of counterculturalism because a lot of things are part of counterculturalism hippies yippies black panthers feminists whatever but it's like some people were politically active for sure and the black panthers is a great example because these were people who were trying to uh help people who uh were disenfranchised by the system and then you have these like young wealthy white kids who are just like well i'm just gonna dress cool and listen to music and smoke weed and I'm not saying all of this is bad because I don't want, like, I think it's very easy in our culture to, like, assume that if you hate hippies then you're not a liberal. And obviously I'm liberal. Um, obviously I have liberal values and, but I just don't think that that's the way to do it. If we're going to change the system in any way, you can't just walk away from it. Um... Well, and we were talking about this kind of when you really started getting into this course. And I remember one of us made the comment about how refreshing it is that we're finally at a point where we can talk along these lines yeah. without being painted as like some kind of hardcore conservative or something. Yeah. Maybe some people would still say that because of how team sports our whole yes. uh, culture is right now. Very but, black and white. But honestly, when I was growing up and if I said that my parents grew up in the 60s but weren't on board with hippies people thought that i had like some like super crazy like like bush loving parents and it's like no i you're you're allowed to say like you just it wasn't you um and, yeah. and that some of it's silly and yeah. 50 years later now it's like swung so far and that you you go online and you know back a few years ago when the okay boomer meme was going around yeah and, it's like now it's to the point where I think people are actually um, knee-jerking a little too far when they mm -hmm. just are not willing to listen to anything that people over the age of 50 say, which is a whole other yeah, conversation. Yeah, that's complicated but too. It, yeah. It's complicated. But again, our point here is just like, we're actually at a point where we can point at some of this stuff and say, hey, no, you were wrong. Right. This, this isn't some utopia. Nothing right. got fixed. In fact, some things got worse. All you guys voted for Reagan and Bush. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what so it, it's a little refreshing to finally have our say from our perspective of like, yeah, your heart was in the right place, but what really happened here? Yeah. And I, and that is uh, ultimately 
I think the biggest bullet point of this course is how are the 60s remembered? How do historians write the history of the 60s? What gets remembered? Who gets remembered? Yeah, and who's left behind and what what is not discussed anymore? Um, and I think this is really important too for our, our both like our parents uh, being raised too because our parents are a little young to be like hippies proper so they really became of age in you know the late 70s when the idealization and fantasy of the 60s was already in the public like the ether was already in the culture and so even our parents have like this sort of distorted idea of what the 60s were as people who missed it. And what is really remembered more so are, you know, it's, it's cliches and it's like what entered mainstream culture. Like hippie-dumb became mainstream. Uh, Jefferson Airplane was making Levi's jeans commercials. Uh, I didn't know the, that, but that's funny. Yeah. Well, that makes sense for them too, especially, but like, yes. Uh, you know, the Grateful Dead got a uh, got a contract with a recording company, whatever. Like, eventually everyone sold out, whatever that, you know, however you want to. Yeah, whatever that meant to them. Whatever that meant to them. Yeah. It's like these people were all making a lot of money and it didn't, it wasn't about protest anymore it was if it ever even was it was about making money and looking cool and being seen and and yeah making music too that is powerful and meaningful for some yeah uh, yeah and which is all of that's totally fine you know that's yeah. the thing there's there's nothing too wrong about that depending on your your point of view but as we were discussing before we started recording you know, you have a guy like Bob Dylan. He's thought of mm. like the protest singer, but he kind of used the movement to get big. Meanwhile, you have guys like Willie Nelson and Neil Young who have started yeah. numerous charities for education, the environment. You know, they've done voting rights stuff and they've yep. been doing this for 50 years. Yeah. And writing explicit songs about this too. Yeah. And, yet, and they're veterans, some of them. Some of these guys, of yeah. Vietnam, yeah. Some of them, and meanwhile, like Bob Dylan, if you asked him, I'm sure he would tell you, I, I did it to just as a stepping stone in my career, which is fine. Yeah, but it know. is fine. But don't. But the, But but then the culture puts it all on you that you are part of this greater movement that wasn't even maybe wasn't even real like was it real what like yes people don't wear suits like my mom always talks about the mad men series and she's like you know i was born in that world and everything changed and it's like yeah people don't wear suits to work as much anymore and they don't have like crazy alcohol smoke breaks and women aren't like at the bottom tier of society uh just above people of color but you know well, also there's, also there's still inequality uh sexism still exists racism definitely still exists 
Uh, well, and the thing and, with like, and the, the political mad- system is like exactly the fucking same. Right, and and the thing with the madman example is like yes, that's a relatively accurate portrayal of that type of world at that time and place. But yeah. that's where it starts and ends. Like that, right. that wasn't everyone's that wasn't everyone's world. If you if you were living in that's Manhattan or around there, yeah. again, it's like uh, you might remember some of those concepts. But there are plenty of places where uh, if a guy walked into a bar wearing a suit like that, people would think he's like a bajillionaire. Some... Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> so and actually, there's still plenty of places in the country like that now. Yeah. It would be even more rare now because people don't dress like that. But right. that's that's the point of like, yeah, for some people, that's what it was. For other people, not so much. Right. And, I, and that's still the case now where like, you know, I have these moments where, you know, I met someone last week at my roommate's Thanksgiving who was, they were anti-trans, they just didn't understand it, and they were just asking really, to me, what felt like inappropriate and ignorant questions, and, but I live in the greater Boston area, and I have for many years, and I know tons of trans people, and have since college, and it's not foreign to me at all, and we're in this lip, we are in this liberal bubble, and you people outside of bubbles like this and the same it was in the 60s of like san francisco la Mm -hmm. new york boston these like wealthy centers of education they're not experiencing the same uh change so you're exactly right yeah and i i think that's where a lot of disconnect has always been it's not a recent thing but um, especially as the internet has made things more accessible for a lot of people, mm-hmm. there still are these these various things. I mean, I, you know, as you were saying, like the the real nuances of like uh, the spectrum of gender and what is being non-binary and some of these things were yeah. pretty new to me even when I went to college. And then certainly, yeah. you know, I met a few people that were in those circles but then there were a lot of people who were like that just they no yeah. never even heard of any of this stuff before and you you have to realize where someone's coming from and what they're tuned into yeah, yeah. and you were in new hampshire like at my college you know i went to a very liberal school and i like i knew trans people who were like the second we got there like it was open that and out that they were trans or they started transitioning the second they got to college because they finally were free to do it. Um, so yeah, but of course, liberal educated wealthy bubble. Yeah. And and, and a lot of those people were from New York city and Boston too. So, and, but that's how it goes. You have a large yeah. metro area and, and that freedom of expression and just different avenues and opportunities for, life that may not exist when you live on you know strip mall center usa right yeah yeah so i'm just i i'm really happy i took this class i've just realized i've learned so much i see hippiness the 60s (laughs) in such a new light I mean, and too, we, you know, at the beginning of the semester, we were talking about the civil rights movement more, and I learned about all these people that I didn't know about. 
Um, and, and the, you know, the marches and the sit-ins and the busings that, like, I didn't know about, the freedom rides. And I feel really thankful for that, too. I think that, I, I just, the world as it's painted for you in the United States and everywhere that is just so white centric and, and male centric is, it's, you can't escape it until you start really diving into things. Um, yeah, you got to go out. You have to see it. You have to yeah. experience it. Yeah. I, that, you know, I was just going to say it's, it's living, living off a world that doesn't exist anymore. If it ever did exist to, yeah. you know, as, as you said, versus kind of being confronted with the reality of a world that has changed so, so much in many ways and very little on others, but in the types of ways you're talking about has changed dramatically. Our, our recommendation this episode is something that just recently came out at the time of this recording. And that is the massive eight hour documentary on uh the evil empire streaming service titled get back directed <laughs> by peter jackson and it is about the recording of get back later titled let it be let as it well be. as a few songs that would later go on to be abbey road of course all this being by the beatles it it's a massive undertaking to even compile it it's another undertaking to uh sit down and watch it I really kind of marathoned it and I really want to watch it. I, I, so it, it's not really our recommendation because I haven't seen it, but I've heard good and yeah, bad things. It's, it's just, it's so massive. And part of the difficulty is, you know, this is archival footage. That's what she said. That sure. If it doesn't, <laughs> if this stuff does not get shown, then it's probably not going to be shown again you know, outside of this movie. So there's some, there's a lot to show and it is really kind of fly on the wall being in the studio with the Beatles. And you see mm -hmm. that they really did not understand music theory at all because every single song they make is just them strumming random chords and just shouting gibberish. But I heard something today. Sorry, you finish. I was just going to say it's amazing. And I'm not saying that to downplay them. I'm just saying, I've heard this for years that the Beatles didn't understand music theory or, or notes or anything. And you watch it and it's like, yeah, that's pretty much true. But they made like the most yeah. <laughs> popular, well-loved music ever. And it's yeah. pretty cool to see that. And maybe, you know, their lack of knowledge of theory made it more accessible. Well, that's what I was going to say. I, I think it absolutely did because yeah. it, they're looking at it from a different perspective but mm -hmm. it's it's a lot to watch um i couldn't really recommend it if you didn't already love the beatles it, it's yeah, not it's not a casual like oh let's see what this is about and it's not for those anti-beatles pro rolling stones types no no and <laughs> yeah. and also you kind of have to love let it be which i honestly i don't really like that album but, but we listened to it on the way to Maine, the remastered. The yeah, whatever and, the, it was. and that's what re, reminded re, re me that released. I don't. Uh, it's what reminded me that I don't <laughs> yeah, really like that's it. That's true. As we were listening to it in the car, I was like, "This isn't my favorite album." You were like, "No, it's not mine either." <laughs> well, here's here's the thing, though. You watch it, and because you're watching them record everything live in studio, 
and this is pre Phil Spector. I actually like that album mm. now. I forgot. They've got an mm. album titled Let It Be Naked. It came out in the early 2000s. Yeah, and I it's remember. that album without all the Phil Spector bullshit. Mm. So I actually really like it because if you're watching eight hours of this, you are listening to so much of those songs Yeah, that I'm probably going to have to take a while before I ever hear any of those ever again. Especially uh, Get Back. They play that song. Oh, easily like 50 times. I, mean, I love it, that song, actually. Uh, um, but nice document of a very particular time in music history. Right. Hmm. Oh, the vicar. Uh, <laughs> and a boy, the pipes, the pipes oh, are I've calling. I've got a song about an octopus. Shut it up, <laughs> your ass. You're lucky we still let you play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> all right come on lads come on boys come on boys <laughs> justin and i i want to say that we've been like going to parties a little bit here and there and like doing uncovid things uh trying to be social getting our feet getting our toes wet uh and it's been good it's not time to eat for me it's time to clean yep time to clean time to clean thanks everyone Bye. Bye.